The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. All right, so we're going to start the message tonight. This is our 14th sermon in the study of church history, and we've covered a lot of materials in these past few months, although I have just barely scratched the surface of things that could be said. There are many, many interesting events that have happened in the history of the church, in Baptist history in particular. But it's been my method throughout the study to kind of give you some outstanding events to look at and then to uh, make a little bit of commentary on those and in some places some application and so that really doesn't leave a whole lot of time for me to go into lots and lots of events uh, of events that have happened and so uh, what I encourage you to do is to read the history uh, this is why the books are written they'll give you more details about it and as you have opportunity that would be a good thing for you to read the history but the really important thing about that is to read the right books because all of the books on church history are not right. As you know, Satan is an enemy of God's people. He's an enemy of the Bible. That's why we have so many translations that are out there today is because Satan is an enemy of Scripture. And uh, Satan's tactics are always to obscure the truth. And one of the things that he tries to obscure is the truth about the church. He doesn't want people to know who the true church is. And so he tries to twist that uh, history of the church to make people think that Catholicism is the real church and that all of us must have had our beginnings in the popes of Rome. Now, most definitely the Protestants can trace their beginning uh, to Rome because the name Protestant presupposes that. But we're not Protestants and the Baptist church does not go back to Rome. In fact, we have the words of many historians, even among those Roman Catholics and the Protestants, who admit that there were people before uh, the Protestants, uh, before the Catholics actually, and certainly before Protestants, that believed just like the Berean Baptist Church does in this time. Now, many of the historians have said that that was the purer church or the primitive church. And so there isn't any doubt that we were here before Roman Catholicism arrived, before there were Protestants, uh, there were people that were like us teaching the truth of God's word. And these are the people that we've been talking about that were vigorously persecuted throughout these past 16 centuries of history that we've gone through thus far. Now what Satan wants to do is to obscure that history. And so you pick up a modern textbook on church history and you'll find that Catholicism is written all over it. Just as surely as God is the one who created the world and that God is assumed to exist, so it is assumed that the church has its beginning in Catholicism. And that's stated as an irreproachable fact that cannot be denied. The Catholic church must be the first church. But it's not. And there are correct histories that are not given the credit that they deserve that tell us about the true beginnings of the church. So I've said all of that to say this, read the history, but make sure that you're reading the right history. Watch out for what you read. Well, we have come through many centuries 
since we began our study uh, months ago, and we found that the church was existent under many different names. Uh, in each century, we find groups, though, that had the same doctrines, doctrines that were passed down from generation to generation, and those doctrines have come down today with no alterations. While others that claim to be the church change with the times, they change their doctrines to fit the times, but Baptists are not that way. We, we've always had the same beliefs. We've never compromised those. The, the very beliefs that are core beliefs that make us the true church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those things have not changed. So what we believed in the first century and the second century was still believed. When we get into the 15th and the 16th centuries, it's still believed in the 21st century. And we are the living testimony to what Jesus said in Matthew 16:18 that the gates of hell would not prevail against the church. And really, that's what perpetuity is. That's what it's all about. It's the same church believing the same things since the time that Christ began it. Well, I want to go back now to the period that we began in our last study, and that is the fifth period of church history that's known as the age of the Renaissance and the Reformation. Now, Renaissance, as I stated last week, means rebirth. And this particular period was the rebirth of culture and education and enlightenment. And it's also a period that sparked great interest in religious debate within Roman Catholicism itself. Now, as we know, uh, Catholicism is known for darkness rather than light. And that's true whether you're talking about culture or science or politics and especially in religion. And what the world needed was a rebirth from all of that after being under the uh, grip of Catholicism for a thousand years, the world needed a rebirth. And this is what happens when the light begins to shine in. The things that are hidden in the darkness come to light. And when Catholicism was uncovered, there began to be an internal turmoil in the Catholic Church. Now, I mentioned in an earlier lesson, uh, well, just as an example of this, that the Roman Catholic Church condemned Galileo in the Inquisition. Now, Galileo said that the earth revolves around the sun, but the official position of the Roman Catholic Church was that the earth was the center of the universe. And since Galileo didn't teach that, uh, they condemned him in the Inquisition, and they were so stubborn about this, refusing to admit that they were wrong, that it wasn't until 1983 that they actually recanted in their condemnation of Galileo. Now, you multiply that, uh, the attempts like that, to stymie advances across many different disciplines, and then you start to get the picture of how dark that things were. And so a, a rebirth was needed, but... They were, the rebirth is, or the Renaissance was given no help by the Catholic Church. What they wanted to do was to control all phases of light, and of life rather. And so shedding light on their heresy was not a way that they could maintain control. But education increased, science and technology advanced, and soon Rome could not withstand the revolt of her own priest. And that's actually what the Reformation was. It was a revolt of priests that were in the Roman Catholic Church, and they could never, or they could no longer stand the lies and the corruption and the immorality that was taking place in the Roman Catholic Church, and so they wanted to clean it up. 
Uh, in the pre-Reformation days, there were men like John Wycliffe who translated the Bible into English, and it was his goal to see that the Bible could get into the hands of the common man. And about 75 years after Wycliffe died, the printing press was invented, and that actually became a possibility that the Bible could be widespread and get into people's hands. And so it was during that time, uh, right after the printing press was invented, that religious debate exploded and the transcripts of those debates began to be available to people uh, to read. Uh, one of the interesting things about the Reformation is that the Reformers in all of this really had no interest in breaking Catholicism completely down. I mean, it was their intent, or wasn't their intent, I should say, should say, not to start new churches. That's not what their plan is. Their plan was to clean up Catholicism and to fix it. And so in 1517, a monk by the name of Martin Luther, whom you're familiar with, tacked a complaint against the Roman church on the door of the cathedral at Wittenberg in Germany. And that complaint is what is known as the 95 Theses. And in that 95 Theses, he listed all of these complaints against the Roman Catholic Church, which was generally against the sale of indulgences, and that's what we talked about last week, the ability to buy people out of purgatory. It was mainly about that, but it was really the sale of indulgences was actually the surface issue. The deeper issue behind that is how that sinners are justified with God. And that core doctrine of salvation, which is justification by faith alone, is the thing that underlies all of the problems that they had with the sale of indulgences. And so when Luther made his complaint, that was a springboard to the great debate on justification by faith alone. Now again, Luther wasn't trying to destroy the Catholic Church. He was a godly person. He was a godly monk who for years had tried to live within that system and he constantly was trying to find his own way of salvation and the way that he did that was to seek personal holiness and he tried the system of merits that the Roman Catholic Church was teaching but as he did that he found that he was never able to deal with the personal sin that was in his life and so trying all of those methods he was beset by sins that he simply couldn't conquer in other words, you can only beat yourself up so much and then you find out that the beating doesn't do any good. And so what Luther determined was that the scriptures supported justification by faith alone and that's the underlying cause of the 95 Theses. Now what I want to do for just a few minutes tonight, I'm not going to take too long at this, but I want to uh, read to you just a little bit of the 95 Theses and show you how that Martin Luther was challenging the practices of the Roman church. Now, you'll notice as I read these, I'm going to go through about the first ten for you, and you'll notice as I read them that Luther was still a little bit mixed up on some things in the very beginning. Some of these things he got straightened out later. But here's how this, this whole thing starts out. First, the introduction to it is that it said, he said, Out of love and concern for the truth, and with the object of eliciting it, the following heads will be the subject of a public discussion at Wittenberg under the presidency of the Reverend Father Martin Luther, Augustinian, Master of Arts in Sacred Theology, and duly appointed lecturer on these subjects in that place. He requests that whoever cannot be present personally to debate the matter orally will do so in absence in writing. And then he begins his thesis, his complaints. Number one, 
When our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, said repent, he called for the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Number two, the word cannot be properly understood as referring to the sacrament of penance, that is, confession and satisfaction as administered by the clergy. Number three, yet its meaning is not restricted to repentance in one's heart, for such repentance is null unless it produces outward signs and various mortifications of the flesh. Number four, as long as hatred of self abides, that is true inward repentance, the penalty of sin abides, that is until we enter the kingdom of heaven. Number five, the Pope has neither the will nor the power to remit any penalties beyond those imposed either at his own discretion or by canon law. Number six, the Pope himself cannot remit guilt but only declare and confirm that it has been remitted by God, or at most, he can remit it in cases reserved to his discretion, except for these cases, the guilt remains untouched. Number seven, God never remits guilt to anyone without, at the same time, making him humbly submissive to the priest, his representative. Number eight, the penitential canons apply only to men who are still alive, and according to the canons themselves, none applies to the dead. Number nine, accordingly, the Holy Spirit, acting in the person of the Pope, manifests grace to us by the fact that the papal regulations always cease to apply at death or in any hard case. And number ten, it is a wrongful act due to ignorance when priests retain the canonical penalties on the dead in purgatory. Now, you can see very easily that those things relate to those sales of indulgences and the impossibility of, of controlling things that happen after people are dead. And as you go on through that thesis, it really doesn't get any better for the Pope. I mean, it starts to get very hard on the Pope and all of his cronies. Now, here's the problem in this, that justification by faith, which is this underlying doctrine, is so antithetical to the Roman system that Catholicism cannot coexist with it. Now, someone asked me uh, before when we were, a long time ago, when we were studying what makes a true church, uh, someone asked me, why isn't there this long, I gave you four things, and the question is, why isn't there this long list of doctrines that have to be separately enumerated to qualify a church as being a true church? Because as you know, we believe many, many different doctrines. Uh, if you read our statement of faith, there are lots of articles in there that describe many different doctrines. And the reason that we don't have to go down through a whole list of these many different things is because that justification is like a whirlpool that sucks a lot of different things into it. So that once you get right on justification, there are other doctrines that will naturally follow. Uh, for instance, uh, people who believe in justification by faith alone also believe in the Trinity. They're not off on the Trinity. They're not off on the deity of Christ. They're not off on the authority of God's Word. And the reason for this is because the Holy Spirit does not reveal justification by faith alone to a person's heart without also bringing in these other doctrines or giving enlightenment on these other doctrines. Now, that, of course, doesn't mean that when a person first gets saved that he understands all those doctrines correctly, but it doesn't take a huge argument to bring people to the belief and understanding of those particular things because justification by faith alone ensures that. 
The Holy Spirit makes sure that that's what happens. And so when Luther was brought to the truth on justification, then he was attacking many, many different doctrines that were in Catholicism. And so when he did that, he wasn't long for Catholicism. And so there had to be a break. Uh, The change in doctrine and justification by faith alone changes everything, especially things that Rome is built on. And so what Luther did was to set himself up for a new church without even realizing what he was doing or what the 95 Theses would do because the Roman Catholic Church was not going to change. As hard as he was going to try to do it, it wasn't going to change. And so if Luther's doctrine was to prevail, prevail, it wasn't going to prevail in Roman Catholicism. It had to work someplace else. And so that's what Luther did. He gave it someplace else and he started another church. Well, the other reformers ran into the same problems. They were priests. Calvin was a priest. Knox was a priest. Zwingli was a priest. And when they got right on justification, they couldn't stay in Catholicism. And so we find, as we discussed last week, that all of these men embraced the solas of the Reformation. And when they did, that meant that their association with the Roman Catholic Church was through. And so out of this movement of the Reformation came other churches. Luther started the Lutheran Church. Calvin began the Presbyterian Church. Knox tried to reform the church in Scotland, and he did that on the way through the Church of England. And uh, he was the one who actually started the Reformed Presbyterian Church in Scotland. Now, the thing that we have to take note of here is that these were new churches. And I'm using that word church in a very generic sense. They were new churches, but they were not the church. They weren't the church that started with Christ. These are churches that began with men, like Luther and with Calvin and with the other reformers. So they're not churches that were begun by Jesus and the apostles. What the reformers had done was to walk out on Catholicism, which itself was, had no connection to Jesus Christ. And so by their own admission... They said that there were others that existed outside of Catholicism. They said they were the pure church that never associated with Catholicism. They were non-Protestant. They were non-Catholic. And in fact, they were the forefathers of modern-day Baptist. Now, as I've told you, we, we have to look at Catholicism and Protestantism not because that they are a part of our heritage, But we have to look at them because those movements, Catholicism and Protestantism, had great effects upon the Baptist church. I mean, profound effects upon it. And when the Protestants began to separate from Catholicism, at first, that seemed like a great gleam of light for Baptists. I mean, Luther and Calvin especially had spread light on the soteriological position of Baptists, or that is what we believe about the doctrine of salvation, that they agreed with Baptists on that. And so Baptists were nothing but happy because of the Reformation. And that's because like-mindedness on the gospel should have brought persecution to an end. And it did for a little while. The persecution ended for a little while from at least those people that had been former Roman Catholics, but it lasted only as long as it suited the purposes of the Reformation because the Reformers didn't give up some of the things that the Roman Catholic Church teaches. 
For instance, church-state government. They brought that out with them. So eventually, Lutheranism became the state church of Germany, and Presbyterianism became the state church of Switzerland, and then of Scotland, and then the Anglicans became the state church of England. And all of those were persecutors. And at first, these groups like Anabaptists fought side by side with those reformers. And they were right with the reformers until those reformers were strong enough to stand on their own. And when that happened, they reverted back to the typical ways of the church state, what the church state always does. They became persecutors. And so Baptists had another enemy to deal with. Now, at this point, I want to mention to you another historical note that's very important because we're, we're going to look at Baptist, uh, we're looking at Baptist history, and most of our heritage as Baptist comes through Baptists that are in England. That's how the Baptists got to the United States, I said primarily. And so, uh, as a historical note, what we need to look at also is the beginning of the Church of England. Now, the Church of England, as most of you probably know, was begun by Henry VIII. He was the founder of the church. And his beef with Catholicism was not so much the doctrinal issues like Luther and Calvin had. Uh, um, Henry VIII was unconcerned about justification by faith alone and the things that the Reformers stood for. What Luther, uh, Henry VIII had was a beef with the Pope. Henry wanted a divorce and the Pope wouldn't grant it. And so Henry, being the head of a sovereign state, said, well, why can't I do what I want to do? I'm the king of England. I can do what I want to do. And so he broke with the pope, and he started his own church in England, which was basically Catholic without the pope. Henry was never a Protestant. He died in the, in the Catholic faith, and it wasn't until after his death that the Church of England that was free from the Pope, began to change its doctrine. And so I think it's kind of interesting that the founder of the Church of England, or what we know today in this country as the Episcopalians, their founder was not Jesus Christ and was not anything like Jesus Christ. Henry was a murderer. If you know about him, he was a murderer. He was an adulterer, which really wasn't much different from the Pope's as far as that goes. But uh, his church had a very ominous beginning. And the Church of England didn't get much better until a later time when very, very godly men like Oliver Cromwell and Hugh Latimer uh, became prominent in England. And that's when uh, there was the rise of Puritanism in England and the true doctrines of the Word of God were being taught. Well, there was a lot of turmoil in the Church of England and the troubles in that church affected Baptist. And one of the most troubling times was in the reign of Mary I. And uh, that was Queen Mary I, who is also known as Bloody Mary. And in case you're interested, the drink that you shouldn't drink, Bloody Mary got its name after her. She was called Bloody Mary. And that's because she put hundreds of people to death, many of them Baptist. Now, it was her agenda, uh, her, her father, Henry VIII, had brought, uh, had thrown Catholicism out with his, well, he hadn't thrown it out, but he had his break with the Pope. And so it was Mary's intent to restore Roman Catholicism and the power of the Pope in England. 
Now, wherever Roman Catholics go, death follows, and so it did with her. So she killed many of the leaders that were in the Church of England, and also many Baptists uh, were killed as well. Well, then her half-sister, Elizabeth I, came to power, and Elizabeth was a Protestant, and so what she did was she had her sister executed, and uh, Elizabeth became the head of the Church of England and also the Queen of England. Well, here's another very important historical note that goes along with it, and uh, it's important to us because it has an effect on the eventual colonization of America and the establishment of Baptist churches on our continent. And that significant event was the defeat of the Spanish Armada in 1588. And that was during the reign of Elizabeth I. Now let me explain a little bit to you about that. And I can't go into the whole story. There's a lot that goes into this. But the important part of this is how that Spain ruled the seas at that time. And they had a formidable flotilla Does everybody know what a flotilla is? Those are ships. So they had this formidable flotilla that was called the Armada. And you may remember that uh, Christopher Columbus sailed under the the flag of Spain, under the authority of Spain when he came to the New New World. It was also Spain that funded the circumnavigation of the earth with Magellan. And so Spain really controlled the seas at that time. Well, Spain was also a stronghold of Catholicism, perhaps even the strongest of all the nations that were in Europe at that time. And being a stronghold of Catholicism, they were also very strong in the Inquisition. And as long as Spain ruled the seas and the trade on the seas, that made Catholicism strong. And so in 1588, this armada, the Spanish armada, that was deemed to be undefeatable, unsinkable, was commissioned with 130 ships and 30,000 men to fight England. Now, the intent was that the Armada would transport troops into England, and what they would do is to squash the Protestantism of Elizabeth I, and uh, the authority of the Pope would be restored in England. And then the Armada was joined by a second force that came out of the Netherlands, and Spain at that time was trying to control the Netherlands. And, and uh, so there was another force that was in the English Channel that was going to hook up with the Spanish Armada. But the pro- a problem arose, and that is that while the Spanish Armada was coming to deliver those troops into England so they could begin to invade, that there was a great storm that came on the sea. And instead of the English ships being able to make the push and make the turn to go into the English Channel, they were forced up along the western coast of England. And in that storm, they were pushed against the rocks and about 67% of the Spanish Armada was destroyed in that, in that, uh, in that great storm. The second group that was in the English Channel wasn't able to rendezvous, so they had no, they had no effect upon this at all. And so the, the, the end result of all of that is that Spain, through all of this, lost their control of the seas. And so these wooden ships of the Armada were pushed into the rocks, they were destroyed, and, say, and Spain lost control. And with that, the spread of Catholicism into new places was greatly curtailed because Spain didn't have that control of the seas any longer, so they didn't weren't able to send out the, the missionaries like they did before. Well, it was then that England's navy became the dominant navy on the seas, 
And so what did England export as they took control of the seas? Well, they exported their Protestantism. And they sent Protestants out with Baptist in tow. And it was the English that colonized America. And if you look at that, the Spanish influence in America at the time of the colonization was practically nil. And that's because England now controlled the seas. And so the English settlements in America were founded mostly by believers. Now, they weren't always right on things like church-state government. But the good thing about it is that the gospel was being preached and now preached without the hindrances of Catholicism. And eventually what that led to was freedom of conscience and also freedom of religion in America. Now, backing up a little bit, the reason that I tell you all of this is because we need to know who actually controlled the seas when the Spanish Armada was sent to attack England. Well, I can tell you that it wasn't Philip II, and I can tell you that it wasn't the Pope. The one who controls the seas is God. And if you don't believe that, then you just watch what Jesus did in Matthew chapter 8. There in that 8th chapter, he said unto them, Why are you fearful, O ye of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. But the men marveled, saying, What manner of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? It's God who controls the winds and the waves. And in fact, it was God who sent that storm for Jesus to still. And that was by God's providence. And it's also God's providence that the Spanish Armada was destroyed in order that the gospel could reach around the world. Now, an interesting note about that is that God also destroyed the plans of the infallible pope who was behind all of this trying to destroy Protestantism in England. So what we should never do is we should never look at the history or the events in history rather as being incidental or coincidental to what happens to the church because this is God's plan for the world. The world doesn't exist for the propagation of governments. It doesn't exist for secular concerns and certainly it doesn't exist for the power of the Pope. The world exists for the glory of God and the Bible says that the way that God receives his glory is through the church. Ephesians 3.21, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. So God was in control of that history. He's the one that makes these things happen. Well, we need to back up now and look at the Baptist. Now, secular history happens, and all of this is involved with God. It's planned by God. And so what were Baptists doing during the time? Well, as I stated, Baptists welcomed the Reformation uh, with open arms. They welcomed it, and they stepped up in many cases to help the Reformers. We agreed with their soteriology. We stood right with them on justification by faith alone. We agreed with them on the doctrines of grace, and that is, in fact, the right soteriology. But the Reformers still held on to some of those Catholic practices. So they still had the church-state government, and they had aspirations that they would have their own state church. And so when they became strong enough, that's what they did. They established their own church-state governments. And with that 
came persecution of Baptists. And that was true whether we're talking about England or we're talking about Germany or Switzerland. Wherever Protestantism was established, so was the persecution of Baptists established. Well, who are we dealing with now as far as the names are concerned? Well, we're getting closer to the unity of Baptistic groups that are that have one name that's common to all. And so in the evolution of the name of Baptist, we do have to consider the next group, and that is the Anabaptist. And the Anabaptists are rebaptizers. One of the very interesting parts of this is that it seems that all of a sudden there is this huge group that's found everywhere. Now we're not talking about lots of little groups in many different places, hundreds of little groups with many different names. But now we have one conglomerate that holds the same principles and they're going under the same name. Now obviously they didn't materialize out of thin air, but they are the successors to all of those other little groups that we've been talking about in history. Now the name had already been used But still, there were all of these other little groups. But eventually, all of those other names were dropped. And we were called by the core belief that bound us together. And that is that we were re-baptizers. And those re-baptisms encompassed the rejection of many different Roman Catholic and Protestant doctrines. Now, the New Testament word, baptize, means to immerse. And so they were called rebaptizers, Anabaptists, because they wouldn't acknowledge the infant baptisms of Rome as being true baptisms. And so when Roman Catholics were converted, they were immersed. When Protestants were converted, they were baptized again. And in that one act, soul liberty was affirmed and baptismal regeneration was rejected. Well, rebaptizing was infuriating to Rome and to the Protestants, because what that was was rejection of their authority. And so in return, Rome would never recognize the baptisms of the Anabaptists. And so Rome actually became Anabaptist, Anabaptist. Now, it's interesting on this that we get criticized because we don't accept baptisms from those that are not of like faith and order. Now, the Roman Catholics actually do the same thing, but nobody ever criticizes them. They have the very same practice, but nobody criticizes them, but they do us. Now, I want to post a comment here uh, about what we do because I brought up the practice that we are also Anabaptist. We don't carry that name any longer, but we don't accept into our membership anyone who has had infant baptism. And I'll take that a step further, that we don't take anybody into membership uh, who has been baptized by immersion if they come from non-Baptist churches. And the reason that we don't is because we don't accept the authority of those churches to baptize. Only those that are in the line of the perpetuity of the church are true churches, and they're the ones that hold on to the fundamental doctrines that constitute true churches. Now, that should be plainly evident to be the right position to take. That has to be the right position to take, and that's the whole purpose that we study perpetuity. Uh, The only churches that have the right to perform New Testament ordinances, such as baptism, must be New Testament churches. 
And so if a church is disqualified from being a true church because it's Catholic or because it's Protestant or something else, then it should be clear to everybody that their baptisms could not be valid. Now, there's some who take that to be a very peculiar position, but that's the right that has prevailed among Baptist churches for all of these centuries. The right to baptize is the very thing that millions of our forefathers died for. They gave their lives for the right to baptize because of what we believe. And so we can't surrender that right to anyone else. And when we don't, we're not different from our Baptist forefathers because they did the very same thing throughout the centuries. And so we baptize those who come from other groups, and we do have many members of Berean Baptist Church that although they were immersed in uh, some other place, we baptized them another time. And that baptism was under the true authority of a New Testament church. Now, when I say Anabaptist, we're not really Anabaptist because that name is a misnomer. There's only one true baptism, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And so if somebody has been immersed or sprinkled or anything else, it's not properly called a baptism because uh, it's not the New Testament way. It's not under the authority of a New Testament church, and so it doesn't have any validity. And so all other types of baptisms are bogus, and you can't really call them baptisms. So you can dunk somebody, you can put them under the water, but they haven't really been immersed. They haven't yet received true baptism until that comes at the hands of the authority of the true church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, admittedly, maybe you didn't know this, but there have been lots of people who would not join Berean Baptist Church because of that position. I remember a lady, particularly this lady, that attended our church very, very faithfully for many, many months. And she liked the church. She agreed with the doctrines that we were teaching. And she determined that she wanted to become a member. And so I took her into the office, and I went over the gospel with her. And I was satisfied as to her confession of faith. I believe that she was a born-again believer. There was no doubt in my mind about that. And uh, there was a problem, though. She had been baptized in a lake. And that's not a problem in itself, but she was baptized in a lake, and that baptism was very special to her. Now, there are many people that have been baptized outdoors. Uh, many, not many, I should say, because most of us that have been baptized have been baptized in a church, in a baptistry, and so on. Um, but this woman wasn't baptized that way. She was baptized in a lake. When I was young, my dad baptized in a creek that was near the church. Our church didn't have a baptistry. And so he baptized in the creek. And if you want to see a picture of that, you can come into my office, and I have a picture of him doing that. But when I was saved, at a very young age, it was in the wintertime. And in Kentucky, it was too cold to baptize in the creek. And so what we did at wintertime, when people were saved, we borrowed the baptistry of a, another Baptist church that was in town. We were a country church. And so we borrowed the baptistry of another Baptist church, and we would go over there on a Sunday afternoon and have our baptisms. So that's how I was baptized. I was taken to a, another church where they had a baptistry, and my dad baptized me. Well, anyway, this woman had been baptized in the lake, and it was the uniqueness of that experience that she was holding on to. But the problem is that the church that baptized her was not a true church. Now, I know that church, and I know what that church believes. And although she had a good profession of faith, she had a good profession the church that baptized her believes 
that a Christian can lose his salvation. Now, I believe that a person who thinks like that, a church that believes that salvation can be lost, is mixed up on the gospel. They don't really understand justification by faith alone, and that's the cardinal doctrine that we have to believe to be a true church. Now, there are people that are in those churches that are saved because they, despite what the church teaches, they have received Christ by faith alone. So they're definitely saved, but they haven't received the right kind of baptism, and they don't understand the implications of things like like not believing in eternal security. But because a person is saved does not mean the church that they get baptized in is qualified to baptize people. Only a true New Testament church can baptize, and that doesn't make any difference if it's in a baptistry or if it's in a creek, a lake, or in the ocean. It's the authority of the baptism that matters, and so a true New Testament church has to perform that baptism. And so when I explained it to this lady about that, when I said that the church that you are a member of is what they believe is totally incompatible with the doctrine of justification by faith alone, that upset her. And she didn't understand that baptism is a church ordinance, and the pastor that teaches that you can fall from grace is supposed to know more about theology than the person in the pew, and he's supposed to know about these kinds of incompatibilities, but she didn't know them. Now, a church that denies justification by faith alone is, as I said, uh, they're mixed up on the gospel itself. Now, many of these churches say that they absolutely do believe in justification by faith alone, but the proof of that is, or that they don't, is the fact that they believe that a person can fall from grace. And so they're mixed up on what that is, that if grace saves us, then grace must keep us saved. And again, that's the number one list, number one in the list on the doctrines that constitute a true church. That's justification by faith alone. So the long and short of my story here is that this lady had been baptized by immersion, but not in a true church. And so that made her baptism invalid. Now, if she had been baptized by Walmart, then her baptism would have been just as good. Uh, it would have because it wasn't a true baptism any way that you look at. Only look at it. A true church is the only one that can baptize. Well, what that did was that ruined all the goodwill that she had towards Berean Baptist Church, and she decided that she wasn't going to become a member here. And so what she did was she joined another church that had a Baptist pastor who had no problem with the authority or the validity of her baptism. And so what happens is that we lose people because we teach this. Not long ago, I spoke to a man who wanted to join here. Same problem, same result. Just last month, I spoke with another lady, and she was interested in coming here. And I told her that we didn't accept the baptisms of the Free Will Baptist Church. And so she said, thanks, but no thanks. Now, in case you don't know, Free Will Baptists are not Baptist. Now, they use the name, but they're not actually Baptist. So what's the bottom line in all of this? Well, we could be pragmatic. We could change our doctrine in order to get more members. I mean, if the doctrine is problematic, why don't you change it? Why don't you make it possible that the church can have more growth because you'd have so many more people that would come in? Well, we can't. And we can't do it because that's a betrayal of our trust. It's a betrayal of our Baptist forefathers. 
but more importantly, it's a betrayal of Christ who gave us his church and his doctrine. Now, I'm going to close on this note, and we're going to come back and talk about Anabaptist the next time, but I do want to close on this note, and that is that out of all of this contention that we've had about baptism and about who can properly baptize people, out of all that contention came a statement that I gave to our deacons a few years ago. I'm not sure even if the current crop of deacons has actually seen this, but I did give a statement to our deacons a few years ago, and this was during the time when uh, the deacons were doing the new member interviews, and so they would discuss with people church membership and baptisms and so forth. But we don't any longer do that. Uh, the, the deacons will take somebody who comes after a service and wants to talk about church membership. They'll take them into a room over there and they'll discuss that with them. But they don't really get in-depth in, in these things, such as about the baptism. They ask the question, but the purpose of asking the question is to inform me so that I'll know how to deal with it because I'm the last one that speaks to a person before they become a member of the church. So I do the last interview for prospective members, and I deal with the issue of baptism. Well, before, when we did it the other way, I produced this statement for our deacons to read to people or discuss with people who came to the church and they wanted to join here, but they had not been baptized in a Baptist church. And so let me read to you what the statement says. Baptism is a symbolic representation of what this church teaches concerning salvation. It has nothing to do with saving anyone, but it is very important in its declarations. Baptism is also confirmation that what the Baptist church teaches concerning other doctrinal matters is correct. We are different from other denominations, and I use that word denominations very loosely, and therefore, to keep the unity of our faith, we accept none other than Baptist baptisms and the authority of Baptist churches in baptism. We find unity in mutual experience and interpretation of scriptures. Baptism is a church ordinance, and as such, it is not something that you as a candidate for membership bring to the church, but rather an ordinance you receive from the church which is recognition the church gives to one who makes a confession of faith in accord with the church's belief. Therefore, since you've not been baptized under the authority of a Baptist church, we require that you submit to the ordinance of baptism as administered by this church. And so that statement is simply a statement that says that the New Testament church, this New Testament church, has the right to refuse the baptism of those that have not been baptized in New Testament churches. Churches that are not like faith and order, churches that do not have the perpetuity behind them that links them to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ are not true churches, and so their baptisms are invalid. And when I say all of that, that is nothing different than was what was practiced by our Baptist forefathers. Now, I have to tell you that there were many or there are many of our members who accepted that teaching as correct. And so we have members that gladly submitted to the baptism of this church when they were, because they had been baptized in non-fellowship churches. Now, you know what that makes them? That makes them real Bereans. It makes them real Bereans because they accepted the truth. And that's what we want as members of Berean. We want real Bereans. 
real Bereans to be members. And that's the only stance that we can take. We can't take any other stance on this because we stand with Christ and we stand with the apostles and we also stand with our Baptist forefathers. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time spent together tonight. Lord, sometimes our doctrine is difficult for people to accept, uh, but believing in the true New Testament church is something that we think is essential for us. We believe in carrying out the principles that were taught by Jesus and the apostles. We have a church that was existent throughout all of these ages and comes down to us today with a singular doctrine, with a true doctrine, with the faith of Jesus Christ, and we have no authority to change what your word says. So, Lord, help us to stand on that. And if we stand alone, and if it hinders growth in the church, then it's okay because we only want real Bereans in Berean Baptist Church. Bless us tonight, Lord. We thank you for the truths that you've given us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.